Welcome to Trinity, and we appreciate you being here. And my name is Todd, and I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. And today we're working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and we're learning about this new kingdom ethic that Jesus introduced, and we are looking at how Jesus is the long-expected, unexpected king, how he enters into history and he changes the world forever. So we've been at this for a while now, and we're preaching through Matthew verse by verse, passage by passage. This is known as expositional preaching, and it's really just uh, a way that we can capture the original context as well as the particular meaning and application for us today. So in the back we have listening guides, and the listening guides has the text in it as well as the main points and a spot for taking notes. So if you need one or would like one, just raise your hand and Dave would be happy to bring you one. So just to recap where we're coming from and where we're going, we've heard over the past several weeks this idea of a new kingdom that Jesus is introducing. You've heard about these antithesis statements and uh, specifically the teaching on anger, lust, divorce, and making oaths. And they seem like such small things, a little bit of anger, a little bit of lust, but Jesus, Jesus makes sure that he kills the notion that this is not sin. And he equates anger with murder and lust with adultery. We're seeing the Sermon on the Mount is also an antithesis in and of itself to Mount Sinai and the giving of the Ten Commandments through Moses. So Moses went up Mount Sinai, went up to the top of the mountain where the heaven and the earth meet, and he met with God, and God delivered the Ten Commandments to him. So we see in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes to the people, and the people come around him. And this is just another example of how Jesus is, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. Christ tells them that everything of the law and the prophets foretold is present in him. He's fulfilled all the prophecy and the law, and he is their long-expected king, their Messiah. In today's passage, Jesus is going to unpack this idea of retaliation and just how unjust retaliation is. So Jesus' teaching today, it flies in the face of everything we know and everything we've been taught and how to respond when we're attacked. Generally, the way we respond to being attacked is to attack. But Jesus gives us a different ethic. He requires a different, a different response from us. In our passage today, he's going to talk about what just retaliation looks like. So if you would, open your, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. I'll read it, and then we'll unpack it together. So Jesus is teaching here, and he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too, and give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for its hard teaching and its, its easy teaching, Lord. We just pray that we would see it all, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. 
and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would just illuminate your word to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So today's passage starts the same way as the other antithesis statements. Jesus is telling the people what the rabbis have taught. You've heard it said is the structure of the, these passages on divorce and lust and, and making oaths and anger. Jesus repeats this again to the people so they know what we pray about allergy season. So he's going to expound to them on what they've heard and he retells them what they've heard from the rabbis. A couple of chapters later, the people marvel at hearing Jesus teach with authority. It says that they marveled because Jesus taught with authority. And you can find that in Matthew 7, verse 29. So because Jesus has authority, he not only interprets the law, but he has the authority to declare how the law applies to his followers. So it's probably best to insert a quick caveat here. Because what we don't want to do is see all these passages that Jesus is teaching on as a universal standard, as something we should do in every similar situation, at every time, in all cases. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's a universal, it's not a universal standard. And as we'll see going on later on, this is a specific standard to a specific group that's supposed to be applied in a specific way. Unfortunately, it was applied in a different way than it was intended. We'll talk about that in a second. So if we look in verse 38, we see this familiar phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this concept is known as lex talionis. And it's a Latin phrase for law of retaliation. And the idea is of just retaliation, or some people have called it exact equivalence. And in other places in scripture, you see it as like for like. And we can find many examples of this in antiquity. Uh, for example, in the Code of Hammurabi, it's a tough one, which is one of the earliest and most complete written legal codes. It was, it was put together and constructed by the Babylonian king, Hammurabi, and he reigned in the 18th century. So an eye for an eye, people love to quote it. Uh, it's popular, it's on bumper stickers, uh, and if you go to Conroe, Texas, you can even get an eye for an eye tattoo at the eye for an eye tattoo parlor. Thank you, Google. So you can find anything on Google. It is... But anyway, <laughs> the Code of Hammurabi, I almost said some heresy there, omnipresent, but it's not. So the Code of Hammurabi, from the 18th century. So it's also, you can find this also in the Roman law. And the Roman law is called the 12 tablets of law, which was like a penal code for the Roman civilization. This concept is very old and it's prevalent in most civilizations. Almost every civilization has a concept prescribing just punishment. The idea that the punishment should fit the crime. For obvious reasons, without some kind of law, it would just be total chaos and anarchy. There are some differences between these codes and the Bible, though. In the other codes, the Code of Hammurabi and the Roman law, there's distinctions for social classes. 
So kings could exact different penalties from paupers. The Bible is the one that applies it evenly across the board. So this was meant to be applied to everyone. Theoretically, kings were bound to this law. They could not exact more than what was prescribed in the law. And they could only exact the same penalty as, for example, a beggar would exact. But the real question is whether or not it can be applied justly. And Martin Luther King Jr. said, the problem is that the old law, an eye for an eye, leaves everybody blind. That's really one of the reasons why it doesn't work as an actual punishment for retaliation because it usually escalates and it doesn't really address the injury. So take, for example, a situation from Iran. In 2017, a woman was blinded because she threw acid in the face of another woman. So the courts decided that they should take one of her eyes by burning it out with acid, and that's exactly what they did. So besides creating two visually impaired people, what did they actually accomplish? As a deterrent, there might be some acid throwers that see that and think twice about throwing acid in the face of somebody else, but I bet that doesn't stop any committed acid throwers. And what about the victim? There's the personal satisfaction of knowing that your attacker is now half blind, but is that really satisfying? So in this example, there's another hypothetical that I want you to think about is what if they took both eyes? Would you have any more satisfaction if the person that blinded you in one eye had both their eyes taken? Would it give you more satisfaction to know that they were completely blind? Well, you'd still be blind in one eye. So scripture makes it obvious that we need lex talionis in the first place. Without it, we would not be able to restrain ourselves. And you can see examples of this in Genesis, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 23. Lamech, who is Cain's great-grandson, seven times removed, is bragging to his multiple wives. And it says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And this is Lamech talking about himself and also comparing him to his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Cain. <coughs> and what he's boasting about is that he killed a man just for wounding him. So what he's also boasting about is about his reward, that it should be 77-fold, whereas Cain's revenge only got him sevenfold. So not only is he boasting about his, his killing a man for wounding him, but he's also boasting about the reward that he's getting. So unchecked, we would run away with our own lusts and desires, including vengeance and retaliation. Would we not? Can't you see this in the world? Like, for example, in the United States, last, in 2017, 17,284 people were murdered Excuse allergies. That means two people an hour are murdered in the U.S. And this is exactly, again, why God gave the law to the people, to limit their sin. 
The law is a guardrail to restrain evil. John Piper says, God gives by concession a legal regulation as a dam against the river of violence which flows from man's evil heart. John Piper there is saying exactly what I just said, which is God gives us this to restrain us from doing what we normally want to do. He restrains evil for their benefit, and he restrains evil for ours as well, and he continues doing it. And many times, many people see this as common grace. God doesn't allow the world to become as bad as it could be. So this particular reference, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, occurs specifically three times in the Old Testament. It occurs in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, and Deuteronomy 19. This concept in the law is a judicial concept that was given to the judges so that they would know how to rule the courts. The law was meant to provide restitution for victims in a system of just retaliation for societies. The problem is, is that people would apply it in their own lives, not in the court. Exodus 21 says, this is in verse 23, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. It's pretty specific. It limited the person wrong to compensation for the actual value of the wrong. It's not as if there was a bunch of half-blind people asking the judges to make a determination about which eye to take out. And you'll see that in a second. So the other way that this went wrong is that the it was applied with blood feuds. So kind of, if you can imagine, a Hatfields and McCoy situation. For example, someone does something to you and you do something back and it just continues over time until nobody can really remember what the original wrong was in the first place or there is nobody left to kill anybody else. By placing limits on the Jews, the judges could prescribe what the just compensation was. So this is essentially let the punishment fit the crime. And it's a principle secured in our own constitution in the Eighth Amendment, prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment. So another practical example might be helpful. So let's say, <coughs> excuse me, you accidentally kill your neighbor's horse. So now you have to compensate him for the value. What if his horse it was kind of a sway back, half dead, old horse, and your horse was Seabiscuit. So the judges at the city gate would establish the value, prob probably prorated based on age and condition, but you wouldn't expect to get a champion horse for your horse that's on its last leg. The judges would establish just compensation. And what, is, what does justice mean in the first place? What are, we, what are we talking about when we're talking about just retaliation, just punishment? What we're really talking about is fairness. Fairness and correct treatment. The problem has always been that people are not just. Like if you look at your own life, and I look at mine, when you're wronged, is your response appropriate and just? Speaking for myself, not always. 
And I can certainly remember times in my life where my reaction was much more egregious than the original wrong in the first place. And I think you can too. So do we look at the wrong done with us, done to us, with eyes towards proportionate response? It's kind of in our DNA to elevate the harm done to us, right? Kind of minimize our part in it and really maximize where other people have harmed us. And our default position is to really crush other people that harm us, crush the opponent. In our pride, every offense is magnified. How dare they? Did that person just hang up on me? That's really worse, isn't it? When you get hung up on, isn't that really something get your blood boiling? They're not in person and they can just terminate the connection. We have examples of this kind of mentality woven into the fabric of our own country. And sometimes we don't even realize the magnitude of the injustice. So in our own history as a country, you know, we're the only country in the history of time to deploy a nuclear weapon. And we've got these two atomic bombs at the end of World War II that were dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima after Pearl Harbor. So this single deployment of two atomic weapons caused the largest single loss of life in the history of warfare. And I don't want to be simplistic here. There are plenty of reasons offered on why it was necessary to prevent further bloodshed, and, uh, which, could have, which could have resulted from a prolonged war, which we'd already been in a prolonged war with Germany. So there's plenty of reasons that are given, but my point is, most people see the dropping of the atomic weapon as retaliation for the attack on Pearl Harbor. The total loss of life of Pearl Harbor was about 3,000 people. Total loss to Japan was about between 120,000 and 220,000 people, mostly Japanese civilians. War is usually the opposite of just retaliation. If you look at entertainment, Clint Eastwood, John Wayne made a living from Westerns. And Westerns is kind of the, it's the model of frontier justice. Dodge City, the Wild West. In many Westerns, many times, things are justified by an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yet it's not often an eye for an eye. Usually it's some kind of minor offense, like spilling a drink on the guy next to me or cheating at cards. But that's another example of just retaliation. Augustine asked, what man, when struck, is content, is content to strike back once? And are we content with that? When we see someone cut us off on the road, this is another example of outrage. What about when they cut you off or they don't merge correctly? What do you want to happen to them? Do you want cops to catch them and give them a ticket? Do you want maybe a minor non-injury crash to happen to them just to teach them a lesson? Jesus says that's wrong. <laughs> what about the internet and social media? The internet is filled with people getting destroyed and owned. YouTube has millions of ownage videos. Many people gobble them up. They've got lots of thumbs ups and likes. 
So the world is and always has been on fire with this culture of vengeance and violence. Growing up, I saw this in my own hometown of Stockton, California, where we became famous many years ago for having one of the first murders that occurred when someone flashed their high beams at someone who didn't have their lights on. And if you look at on Snopes, you can see that this, the, the answer to this question that was posed was, um, is there a gang initiation where people drive around with their lights off so people will flash at them and then they can kill them? And what happened was this, this woman flashed her lights at someone without lights on and they, they, they basically chased them down. She was a kindergarten teacher. They shot her and killed her and shot the two passengers with her. Snopes says this is false because it's not a gang initiation. Actually happened, but wasn't a gang initiation. So even though these are extreme examples of unjust retaliation, we can see this principle even in small things like a slap on the cheek. And that's the problem. We don't see the sin in our own lives. We magnify the sin in other people's lives. We magnify the offense that they're committing against us. And we can be very self-righteous. And Christ gives us four examples in the following text of how citizens of the kingdom of heaven should respond to injury, offense, or request. So let's look in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And Jesus starts off by telling the crowd to not resist the one who is evil, which can be very confusing. So this shouldn't be taken as a universal command to never resist evil because we know in at least two other places we are told to resist the devil. James 4.7 says, tell, tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from us. In 1 Peter it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring, excuse me, roaring lion seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You can find that in 1 Peter 5.8. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus is speaking here against personal retribution and vindictiveness. He is urging them to avoid confrontation and resist the urge to seek personal retribution. Notice that the text says right cheek. Generally, with most people being right-handed, this would be a backhanded slap, which is much more insulting than a regular slap. This would be a grievous insult, and the natural inclination would be to strike back. In fact, the lex talionis tells you, obligates you to strike back. But Jesus tells them to turn the other cheek, essentially offering the person the chance to strike you again a second time. And Jesus' point here is it's, it's better to be slapped twice than to retaliate once. This is not a prohibition against defending yourself or it's not an indictment about our, our, our rights to defend ourselves. He's not a pacifist. And Jesus, again, is establishing these things that he gives us these, these examples on this particular teaching, which is Jesus' first discourse in the book of Matthew. 
it's a, remember that without Lex Talionis, a backhanded slap might get you killed. And it probably did in some cases. Jesus knows that the person that just got backhanded is legally authorized to demand retribution and to exact it themselves. And if they went to the court, the judge would meter that out. But Lex Talionis demands like for like, but Jesus is saying, for the sake of love, take the injustice. Set aside your human dignity because of your heavenly identity. He's not asking you to simply not strike back. He's telling you to turn the other cheek. He's telling you it will be good for you and better for him if you do not retaliate. And this, again, flies in the face of usually how we respond to things. When we're insulted, do we tend to lash out? I know that that I do. Being offended is part of being human. Jesus is giving us a kingdom ethic that's not an easy one. Is your dignity more important to you than forbearance? Long-suffering. Jesus says that it shouldn't be. And we're supposed to be imitators of Christ. That's our command, is to model Christ. And in that, we're going to model suffering like he modeled suffering. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for him, up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You can find that in Ephesians 5. You continue looking in the text at verse 40, you'll see Jesus' other example. His next one is, if, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So the people would have been familiar with Exodus 22, verse 26 and 27, which reads, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. And in ancient times, you could be sued for your tunic, which is essentially your undergarments, but you could not be sued for your cloak. The cloak was the garment that kept you from freezing to death at night, so no one was entitled to take it from you. So even if you put your cloak up, and you got to imagine for a second what you have if you need your cloak as collateral. So think about these people. They're the lowest of the low and have no possessions. So much so that the clothes on their back is what they're offering as collateral for loan. Even if you put your cloak up as a collateral for a loan, the lender was required to return it to you by nightfall or face punishment themselves. Christ here tells us that it's best to give it to him if he asks. And if he sues you, give it to him. This is something they can't take from you, but Christ is telling you to give it to them. Friends, and you you think about it, what would it mean if you gave someone your tunic and your cloak? It would mean that you're without any clothes at all. And what Christ is talking about is the value of dignity in this as well. 
And this is tied into the first one, the backhanded slap. It's an affront of your dignity. It would be just like if someone took your clothes. And Christ is again telling you that your dignity is less important than following him. He goes on to, to say, if anyone forces you to go with him one mile, then go with him too. This is in verse 41. Under Roman occupation, Romans could press people into service for up to a Roman mile. And you can remember one of the most significant examples of this is Simon, <coughs> excuse me, Simon the Serene being pressed into service to carry Jesus' cross. It's found in Matthew 27, beginning of verse 32. But one of the contributions, one of the best contributions to the civilized world is the Roman system of highways. And Roman soldiers or citizens, if they were on the highway and they had stuff to carry, they could press you into service and you would have to carry their gear for a mile. So no matter what you were doing, you had to stop what you're doing and go with them a mile. They couldn't press you to go further than a mile, which was about 1,500 paces, but you had to carry it the mile. So Jesus is telling them, go the extra mile, go the second mile. The text says compelled, uh, and you can, it's also been called impelled, and you'll see it also called impressment or pressed into service. And this is a practice that a lot of armies use and other things like that. And it's one of the things that you may have heard it also called Shanghai. This is one of the reasons for the War of 1812. The British Navy was notorious for this. And they would press people into service, clean out the bars, and you would wake up in the middle of the ocean. But that was pretty much the problem with the practice. So it eventually died out because of mutinies. And if you can imagine grabbing a bunch of drunk sailors and getting them on the ship, well, this sounds like a great idea, safe at the dock, but once they wake up and you're thousands of miles at sea or hundreds of miles at sea, probably not the best idea. They have a bunch of uh, hungover, woken up, used to be drunk sailors. But this message is not lost on the hearers. The oppressors could make you the victim of their oppression, carry the weapons they used to oppress you for a mile. And again, Jesus tells us to carry it further. He tells us to carry it too. But I don't think he meant to. I think he meant as long as you possibly can. And in the last example in verse 42, Jesus says, Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And again, the caveat here is Jesus is not telling us to give all our money away. He is not telling us that we should give everything away um, because he writes in, or Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So when we're looking at this, we shouldn't see this as some kind of um, challenge to should give away all their earthly possessions. And it also shouldn't be seen as someone having ownership over us if, in fact, they're able and capable of earning a living. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. 
He's talking about being open-hearted and generous and giving to those who are in need, in many cases through no fault of their own. So this passage would also have a different meaning to Galileans who they, they earn property through birthright. So Gal, some Galileans, they inherited property and they might have no other possessions. And generally, how this would work out is that other people would loan them things waiting for them to default. So the idea was we would loan you things, you would default, and then we would take your property. In a lot of cases, it was land. And Jesus is making the admonition to give freely without expecting back. On face value, we should read this as giving away freely, but we should understand it as, as again, the prompting of the Holy Spirit is what's important. Following Jesus is what's important. This parallel passage in Luke says, it's found in Luke 6, says, give to everyone who begs of you. And Jesus is admonishing us to give not only out of our abundance, but also out of our poverty. So giving is a common theme in the Gospels. And whether we're rich or poor, we have a treasure that we carry with us. And Jim Elliott said, the missionary, he says, he is no fool that gives away what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So the most important thing we have to give is the gospel. And this whole passage, and my third point is to press in instead of pushing back. This whole passage is application-rich so it makes my job pretty easy. Turn the other cheek, give up your cloak, walk the extra mile, give to the one who borrows. Pretty straightforward, right? And this is all picking up your cross and carrying it. And it's what Jesus demands of us. And the what is followed up by the how. We're followed it in the strength of the Holy Spirit. None of this is possible without the gift of the Holy Spirit. He is the force that powers our efforts to, to not be offended or not react to offense when people offend our dignity or take our possessions. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witness in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It goes on to say in Acts 4, With great power the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. So the what is easy to see. Now we know the how. <laughs> Paul tells us in Romans 12, 21, which we already heard today, God is a God of order. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. So we overcome evil with good, and Philippians 2.15 tells us, as he who is called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In scripture, Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. 
Jesus is calling us to a different ethic. He's calling us to this idea that we're salt and light in the world. And we do it by being holy as he is holy and not tiring of doing good. Spurgeon says, They are to be as the anvil when bad men are the hammers, and thus they are to overcome by patient forgiveness. The rule of the judgment seat is not for common life, but the rule of the cross and the all-enduring sufferers for us all. So there's really no point in trying to look at these passages from every different angle to see how we can get out of doing this. (laughs) We can't. He's calling us to something different. He's calling you to something different, and he's giving you the Holy Spirit so you can do it. So some might be saying, well, that's impossible. But we don't really know what's possible. And it doesn't tell us what's possible. It tells us to never tire of doing good. And the reason we do this is because we're called to do it and because Jesus did it. Christ fulfills the law, not by retaliating, but by turning his cheek and ultimately giving his life. Trying to follow this new law for kingdom citizens is impossible in our own strength. And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit and especially grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The law is a spotlight that exposes our sin, but grace is the sun that changes night to day, changes our darkness to light. Grace powers our faith, and these are the works that we're called to do that Christ created beforehand that we should walk in them. Oswald Chambers writes, the teaching of the Sermon of the Mount is not do your duty, but do what is not your duty. It is not your duty to go to the second mile, to turn the other cheek, but Jesus says, if we are his disciples, we shall always do these things. He goes on to say, the disciple realized that it is his Lord's honor that is at stake in his life, not his own honor. Never look for right in the other man, but never cease to be right yourself. Never look for justice, but never cease to give it. Friends, grace is the fuel through the Holy Spirit that powers this kind of obedience. And it's impossible without that. He did not leave us without a helper. And he says in Romans, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. He goes on to tell the Romans in chapter eight, if you live according to the flesh, you will die But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Should see a trend line there. Spirit, life, flesh, death. And this is how we do this, friends. Through the power of the Spirit, we have life 
And this is the message we bring to those that are dead. It's certainly not easy, but the fruit of this is laid out in Galatians. It says you will see this fruit produced from this kind of living. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And you will be salt and light in your homes, in your churches, in your communities. And this is the promise that we cling to while fulfilling this new law, this new covenant. Because it's secured in the blood of the Christ and it's sealed by the Spirit. So just let these words from Matthew wash over you from chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you a rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We do these things in the power of the Holy Spirit, resting on the finished work of Christ at the cross. Let's pray.